Good morning. I hope that my talk's as good as the intro music. I don't think I've ever been introduced like that. If they had played that when I was playing high school football just before the Oklahoma drill, I'd have, I'd have been a lot better. I might have been a starter. Um, hey, listen, I am so excited to be here. Really appreciate the introduction uh, from Mo, Stu, from Hallie. Uh, yes, I was planning on coming out and having a big suspense buildup about how we have the, uh, the five sons after Brent spoke last night and I felt like I was just living vicariously through his story. You know, he had son number one and number two and number three and, and I was, and, and was kind of like him in the sense that, you know, in fact, when we were pregnant with our first, we didn't really care, boy or girl. Uh, I, I, you know, I always thought it'd be really great to have a son, really great to have a daughter. And um, by God's grace, we had my son Caleb, who's actually here with us today. How about a quick shout out to Caleb, everybody? All right, Caleb. <laughs> he really loves the spotlight. He'll appreciate that. And uh, then we got pregnant again by God's grace, and, and we were thinking, you know, uh, you know, if it's a son, somebody for you know, throw the ball around with Caleb. If it's a, if it's a daughter, that'd be pretty cool. A son and a daughter, and it was a boy. We had Luke, and um, and then we got pregnant again. And uh, I thought, you know, it'd be really cool to have a girl. Love to have a girl. Love to have some, you know, be a, be a, be able to go to the father daughter dance one day, that kind of thing, and. And, uh, but if it's a boy, you know, I'd have a foursome. That's kind of fun, you know, like for the rest of your life, you got your, you got your golf foursome. And, um, and sure enough, we had Jonathan. And then we got pregnant again, and uh, we were like, all right, it'd be awesome if it was a girl. You know, I mean, God, you're in charge. Really, really cool for a girl. I don't know if it's wrong to pray for a girl, but it'd be really fun to have a girl. But, you know, if it's a boy, we're easing into that epic territory of God's giving, really? Like, all, like a tribe? And we had David. And uh, then we got pregnant again by God's grace, and uh, just thought, you know, I'm, we're just going to beg God for a girl. And uh, it doesn't seem to be sinful to do. I mean, he's in charge, he's sovereign, do whatever he wants. We, we're going for it. And, uh, and so uh, kind of like uh, my man Brent, just whole pregnancy, waiting, not finding out this time, really, you know, hold on to the hope as long as possible. And uh, did not have the epic delivery story, but did have a delivery. And, um, and in that moment, in that last gasp, God gave us Mac. <laughs> and uh, interestingly enough, the reason we named him Mac is sometime during that nine months when we were anticipating and waiting, we had about 16 girl names because every time we were pregnant, we'd have like two or three more that were kind of on the list. And, and we just saved them just in case. And so uh, son after son was born and, and the list kept growing longer. But we didn't have any boy names. I mean, we were just flat out. And, uh, and so we got to Mac, it was like a month before he was born, and, and uh, I was studying this cool uh, point in world history where my mother's a Messianic Jew, and so my whole mother's side of the family's Jewish, and there's this really cool point in history where Jewish history intersects world history in the most unique way in uh, 165 uh, BC-ish. You might know the story of the Maccabees. Anybody? My man. <laughs> Is your name Mac by chance, or... Uh, so, so I, I love this story, and I told my wife, I said, if, you know, there was, there's this Jewish family of five boys that God used in the most unique way. If, if somehow this is a boy, let's name him Maccabee, and, uh, and we got excited, and sure enough, God, God brought forth the fifth son. I think we have a slide up here with, this is, uh, this is, that's Christmas morning. There they are. That is, uh, Kyler Murray. That's, uh, the Honey Badger. Um, second, you got, you got uh, Tyreek Hill. You can't see Jonathan. He's, he's a Buffalo. He's the only Buffalo Bills fan in Memphis, but he has a Diggs jersey. 
And then there's the Maccabee in the back. He's, uh, he's not exactly clued in that we're taking a picture, but, but he's there. And, uh, and, and, boy, I'd appreciate you. Oh, that, that, by the way, that's Sunday morning. I don't know what it was doing. It, it, it was like 70 the night before, and then it's snowing. So they sent me that. We were driving through ice to get here, and they were having a big snowball fight. So there they are, Sunday morning. Um, uh, it, quickly, that, if, if, I'd love you guys to pray for them. That, that story of the Maccabees grabs my heart. Uh, it's, it's in the Greek, well, it's in the days of it, the end of the Greek empire, Alexander the Great, everybody's probably heard that name, or you've been missing a lot of class. And then um, Alexander the Great, world empire, uh, after him, four generals fight over the empire. One of the lines, the Seleucus line, grows strong. Eight rulers later in the Seleucus line, there's a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes that comes to power, and he's crazy. I don't mean a little bit crazy, I mean completely mad. And he claimed to be God, claimed to be, he even used the language, king of kings, lord of lords. He thought he was he was the God. In fact, he said to Israel that he was their Messiah. Israel didn't buy it. He hated Israel. So he stormed in. He took out Jerusalem. He desecrated the temple. He slaughtered a pig on the altar. And he wanted, to kill, he wanted all of Israel to worship him, to bow a knee and worship him. And uh, he, went, uh, he sent a, a prefect uh, village to village with some soldiers and said, now you got to bow a knee to me uh, or, or I burn the village. And this group of soldiers went village to village. They came to a place called Modin, the Adam, the spiritual leader of the village, was a guy named Mattathias. And um, Mattathias comes forward and they say, hey, you got to pay homage to Antiochus Epiphanes as an act of worship, or we burn the village. And he had prayed about this moment. He, 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 was, he knew this could mean terrible things for the village, but he just couldn't bring himself to worship Antiochus as the false god. And so he said no. And so the soldiers came to run a spear through Mattathias. And they, just before they did it, they ran into a problem. They encountered a, a challenge. And that challenge was that he had five sons. And those five boys stood up and they bum-rushed the soldiers and the village jumped in and they defeated this little band of 16 soldiers. And, and inadvertently, just trying to save their daddy, they started a revolution. It was called the Maccabean Revolution. And uh, Jews came from all over the hill country. They joined in, they fought guerrilla warfare. Over the next three years, somehow, miraculously, they drove the entire Greek army out of Jerusalem and on 160 in 164 on December 17th they overtook the temple and uh, Judah Maccabee was the third son it was John Simon Judah Eleazar and Jonathan and uh, they they came into the temple and they had enough oil to burn in a lamp for one day consecrating the temple was their first objective that takes eight days and so they didn't have enough oil to burn but he said we're not going to wait uh, let's just burn what we got and miraculously, the light burned for eight days, and they consecrated the temple on December 25th, 164 B.C. That's still celebrated today in, in the tradition of, of uh, all of my family on my mother's side, Hanukkah. It's called the Festival of Lights. And as a Christian, what we see foreshadowed through that is that 164 days, years later to the day, the light of the world was born. And all that the festival of lights pointed to came. And the light came, and John said, in him was life. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. If you want to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, that's where we're going to be. Let me pray as you turn. Father, thank you so much for a few moments. We might just be still in your word on a cold morning in Frisco, Texas, that your spirit would move in this place through your word to... Uh, to punch through the callousness and the numbness and the deadness that exists in some of the hearts in this room and to bring forth 
new life, to press deeply the roots of the gospel into hearts and minds that would bring forth the fruit of salvation. Even today, even this week, new life. We ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen. So Ephesians 2 starts this way. This is the Apostle Paul. By the way, you heard last night, really loved everything Brenton had to say. He was in Acts 17. That was the Apostle Paul preaching in Athens. If you were to follow, if you just keep reading from Acts 17, you keep reading right in 18, the next thing you're going to see Paul do is get on a ship, cross the Aegean Sea, and land in Ephesus. And he's going to start a church there. He'll ultimately travel a little bit, but then be back for two years. And then uh, about 25 years later, he writes that church a letter. And that's what we have here in Ephesians. Okay, so context, uh, pretty cool there, right from Athens to Ephesus. In verse 1 of chapter 2, he says, he's talking to the church. These are Christians, but he says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins. You were dead. That's a, that's a uh, strong statement. Uh, generally, our, our temptation when we look at that is to go, well, what does he mean there? Because it, it doesn't seem like he could mean what we think he means, which would be that we're dead. I mean, what does he mean? And by the way, I've uh, just had the privilege of studying under some unbelievable teachers and spent seven years in, in seminary. And uh, if, if this is my favorite book of the Bible, so I've, or at least one of, one of a couple. And I've studied it. Hard, and, and I'll tell you what, if you do all the research and you do a Greek word study, you're, gonna fi- you're not going to find any wiggle room here. You're going to find that dead means dead. That Paul wasn't mincing words. He wasn't uncareful. This carried along by the Holy Spirit. He said the state of man apart from God is, spiritually speaking, dead. Now, just very quickly, you, you, you guys remember in the Garden of Eden, most of you are probably familiar with this story, when God uh, placed Adam and Eve in the garden to enjoy him and to know him, to be satisfied in him. Eden was awesome. By the way, our Bible starts in a garden. I'm just going to grab about two pages here. And, uh, and it ends in a garden, okay? But everything in between here, I should turn it the other way, but all kinds of notes would fall out. So I'm just everything in between is, is this period of time where man is out of the garden, apart from God, longing to be back in his presence. I love the quote uh, Brent gave you from Augustine last night. Uh, our hearts are restless until they find rest in God. I don't know if that struck you or not when you heard that, uh, one of the early church fathers. Uh, that's true. You may think out there, I'm not, I'm not restless for God. Uh, I'm not longing for God. I'm, I'm longing for a girlfriend. Uh, or I'm, I'm longing to uh, graduate. Or I'm longing for a, a, a good job. And, and what the Bible says clearly throughout is, you might think that's what you're longing for. But if you actually attained it, you'd realize that longing in you was still there. You go, wait a minute. I thought it was just the girlfriend. I thought it was just graduation. I thought it was the good job. And you can keep going. I thought it was. I thought it was. I thought it was. And you can spend your whole life chasing after that which will never satisfy. See Ecclesiastes. Solomon did it. Had it. Anytime you think this will get get me there, just read Ecclesiastes. Solomon already did it. Been there, done that. Got the t-shirt and says it doesn't satisfy It's only relationship with God. From the moment that God told Adam and Eve, you eat of this one tree, you're going to surely die. Enjoy everything else, eat of this tree, you'll die. When Eve ate of the apple, and Adam was standing right there by with spiritual headship, so he's responsible, they were were forced to leave the presence of God. And when they exited that garden, God had to put a flaming, uh, an angel with a flaming sword to guard the garden. That's how bad man would want to get back into the presence of God. 
but they're, uh, they're cast away, they're cast out. They're now in darkness. Uh, words used, they're now lost, they're now blind. They're apart from the life of God that they were so enjoying in the sweetness of Eden. Even in that first moment, God said to them, he cursed the serpent, he said, childbearing is going to be rough, I've witnessed that firsthand. He said, work's going to be hard, I understand that firsthand. And he said, but one day, you, speaking to Eve, you're going to have a seed. He, calls him a he, it's a singular male. And says to Satan, he said, you're going to strike the, the heel of this coming one, but he's going to crush your head. I'm going to send someone to fix everything broken this moment. We start in a garden, we're going to get back to a garden, but in between because of the fall of man, there's a, there's a longing in the heart of man to be back in fellowship with God. Okay? Paul says, until you know the one that reconciles you unto God, that makes you right with God, until you're saved, if we want to use that word, here's the state of your soul. You're spiritually dead. That's the way every one of us starts. If you have children, some of you do, uh, if you have children, y- you don't have to teach them to be lost, darkened, disobedient, sinful. And by the way, I'm, I'm, I love my kids, but man, they come into the world knowing good and well how to sin. They, they come sinful. Uh, they, they are incredibly selfish and self-absorbed, and that's, that's the way we are, unless or until there's an intervention, there's something that happens that breaks us, shapes us, re, uh, recreates us. Like, we have a sin nature. Uh, you might be out there thinking, well, I mean, that, that's just such a strong word. <laughs> Couldn't he say, you know, just broken here or, you know, um, in need? or like, like, isn't there some good mixed with some bad in us? I mean, we're image bearers of God. I get that we're sinful from the time we're born, but isn't it good and bad? Let me just, let me just give you this little story. Um, uh, a good friend of mine told me this story. He's a, uh, a pastor, lives out in the country, and he says one night he was at a chili, uh, a chili dinner with some other families, and there's a rancher, big old farmer that was famous for the chili. Everybody loved his chili, and so he was, they were all there, he was making the chili, and my buddy, uh, the pastor, snuggled up next to him as he's making his chili and said, hey, I want to see how you do this. Your chili is like world, everybody loves it, and the church and the community, guys well known. And big, big old rancher dude, he's just sitting there, uh, just, you know, he's got a big dip in, he's got a spit cup, he's got a big vat of chili, and he's just kind of stirring his chili, he's telling him what he puts in there, he's telling him about the deer sausage he uses, and he's telling about the, the kind of beans he puts in, and every once in a while he's spitting in the cup, and he's just stirring his chili, and, and my, my pastor friend's kind of taking notes, okay, I got it, he put this in, and how do you heat it, and how do you combine it, what do you do, and he's going, and then all of a sudden he, he's talking, and he spit in the chili, and he kind of stopped and realized what he had done. My, my pastor friend saw it, and eyes got big. And there was a moment, and then the guy goes, now, let me just ask you a question. This is world-famous chili. This is the good stuff. It's not homemade deer sausage, every kind of bean the guy grew in his own. I mean, this is the real. How much of that chili do you think my pastor friend ate that night? He passed. He passed. It was just one spittle. Uh, how much of that chili was contaminated when you stirred in that one spit? Sorry, there's probably a less gross analogy here I could have used. But, but you get the idea. That chili is infected. <laughs> like, it is contaminated. And we could say, well, there's a lot of good stuff in that chili. That chili is corrupt. All right, th- I'm not touching the chili, and neither are you. And by the way, that metaphor doesn't even come close. It's not like we are packaged with all this good, noble holiness, and there's just this one spittle of sin. No. 
No, the truth is, if we wanted to get really grotesque, I'll try not to go there with you, our whole, our whole life would be far more rightly identified as a big old vat of spittle. I mean, at the end of the day, if you really, and, and, and uh, Hallie was joking around with me before, she said, how do you want me to introduce you? Should we not even, you want me to introduce you as a guy who really knows how to sin well? I said, yeah, that would actually be really true. Uh, hate it, but yeah, no, like if you knew my thoughts, my actions, and the motive behind my thoughts, like, they're, like, like there's, there's, there's not a lot of holiness walking around here. Apart from the life of God in me, man, uh, I truly am a lot more corrupt than I'd like you to know or than I'd like to admit. I think if any of us had to have our life displayed on these screens for everyone here to see, including our thought life and our private life and the motives behind every decision we make, we'd all go, hey, I'd like to exit left ASAP. Because it's not just a little bit of corruption in us. We have, a, from the time Adam and Eve left the garden, there was a sin nature passed down to me, passed down to you. We know good and well how to sin. That's our natural bent away from God. Unless that bent is supernaturally curved back to God, we sin. We are sinful. And Paul says we're dead in our sins. Okay, what, uh, if the extent is that we're totally dead, the breadth is that we're completely contaminated, we're completely corrupt, what, what does that look like? Well, let me just, I don't have to think back. It's about half my life now since before I was uh, a Christian, before Christ saved me. Uh, if I think about that, what it, what it looks like is your mind is not consumed with God and his glory. You, you're not, you, you, you're not uh, I, I was in the elevator with a guy on the way over here, and he had a hat on, and his hat said, uh, oh, shoot, I should have paid more attention. It said, um, it said something like consumed with Jesus, okay? Where's that guy? All right, it said, because I'm like, but, and I remember thinking, ah, I mean, I mean, to wear that, that's a, bold, that's a bold hat to wear. This guy must really love Jesus. When you're not a Christian, you don't think, man, that's a great hat. Like, you're not walking, your mind is not anywhere, it, it, you're either ignoring God, don't even believe in God, just don't care about God, or hope God's cool with you since you're cool with him, kind of a thing. But, but you're, you're kind of mentally numb towards God. And then in your uh, affections, what is it that you love? You don't have a burning love, you're, you're not desiring for Sunday morning to get here quicker so you can go worship with the people of God. I hated church. Growing up, I, I had to go to synagogue on Saturday, church on Sunday, hated all of it. Just wanted to be with my dad at rugby tournaments. I wanted any way out. The, 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 the worst place for me to be was with a bunch of people singing songs that never ended in a liturgy I'd understand, and then somebody opened the Bible and talking like I was dead to all that. My, uh, my heart was callous to God. My mind was numb. My heart was callous. My will. What's God's will for your life? You'd ask me, I don't know, and I don't really care. I'm trying to figure out what my will for my life is. I need a little better plan. I need to pursue it. I'd like to get my ducks in a row. Like, I wanted to follow my will for my life. And if somebody said, hey, well, i tell you what God's will, would you trade yours for? No, unless God's looks a lot like mine and he can help me make my will happen. If God exists to serve me, I'm good with God. But if I exist to serve God, I'm uninterested. Now, that's just the way it is when you're spiritually dead. Paul, speaking to this church of Christians, says, every one of you were dead. Like, that's where we are. Minds darken, hearts callous, wills alien to God. And the result of that deadness, he goes on to say, oh, somehow my Bible's in 2 Kings. Okay, in Ephesians 2, he goes on to say, 
You're dead in your trespassing sins in which you once walked. The idea of walk is it's a lifestyle. You're living apart from, without, alien to the life of God. Remember, Jesus is the light of the world. In him was life. The life was the light of man. Darkness will not overcome it. Well, until there's Jesus, until that light's on inside of you, uh, you're just as dead as the last funeral you went to, and there was somebody laying in that casket. Spiritually, you're laying in that casket. Spiritually speaking, that's what Paul means. You're dead apart from any life, apart from anything that could normally or reasonably lead you to life. You're going to need something supernatural to happen in your life to not just revive, but resurrect a dead body and make it new. Well, you walked in this life following the course of this world. That's, that's what it is to be apart from God. You are, it, it's like um, being in a river that's got a strong current and everyone's in it and we're all heading downstream, don't exactly know where. And you don't really think about the fact that you're in the river because everyone's in the river. Unless you are plucked out of that river and placed on dry ground, it's like a fish doesn't know it's wet until it's taken out of water. It's just the environment it lives in. A lost person or a person that does not know God, does not have the life of God in them through Christ, is, is just swimming downstream in this current of the world. Everyone is going in the same direction. And, and what does that direction look like? Well, it says, following the prince of the power of the air. There's a spiritual force at work that's, that's pulling that current downstream in this direction of the world, this direction that's alien to and away from God. Uh, this might be a stark thing to say, but it's just what the Bible says, that Satan is behind this, uh, that the prince of this world is, uh, is Satan, and that when you are dead in your sin, you're enslaved to sin. You're, you're following Satan's will for your life. If you're, if you're not following God's will for your life, if you're not a servant of God, if you're not a lover of God, what are you? You're one who's alien to God. And if you're alien to God, you are enslaved to sin. By the way, do you know that? Not usually. You might be frustrated. You might be kicking against the goads. You might be discouraged. Uh, it, it different. You might be wondering why there's this um, uh, un, uh, unsatisfaction in your life, these longings, these aches that nothing's ever enough. But you usually don't understand the slavery that you're enslaved to sin, and there's a spiritual force behind that that's Satan. Well, that's what the text says. And it says the spirit that is now working the sons of disobedience. Your whole life could be characterized, if you don't know Christ, as disobedient. Uh, you may be even an obedient child. You may be a good kid that honors your mother and father, but a disobedient to God. You are not one who has received the gift of God in Christ. You're, just like uh, Barnabas was called the son of encouragement. He was characterized by it. It's what defined him. Must have been a really encouraging dude. You and I, before Christ, are defined as disobedience. So understand what Paul is saying to the church in Ephesus. Hey, you know, you, know what, you know what once was true of you because it's true of everyone apart from Christ? You were spiritually dead. You were darkened, and you were disobedient. And everybody that's in Christ, everybody that's hearing this letter in Ephesus is nodding their heads. That's exactly right. I didn't know it. I didn't know it was in the dark until somebody turned the lights on. But that's true. And then he goes on in verse 3 to say, among whom we all once lived. Is there anybody, anybody came to Christ any other way than through spiritual deadness, supernaturally resurrected to new life? There's no other way. It says we all once lived among them 
And what did that look like? In the passions of our flesh. Just following the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. What's my God? My carnal mind, my physical desires, my flesh. You know, what's my next meal? Uh, what, are my, what fleshly desires do I have and how do I pursue them? Um, how do I satisfy the cravings that I have? Again, for uh, sex, for money, for an identity, for uh, position, power, for financial freedom. Like, like, what cravings do I have? And those are my God. I'm enslaved to them. And then he finishes here, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You weren't just dead and darkened and disobedient. At the end of the day, you were doomed. Children of wrath. Uh, this is saying that the end of your disobedience to God, the end of your spiritual deadness, would be revealed in a day where you stand before God, every one of us will, and the books of your life are opened, and you're identified for who you are. One who is numb to God, callous to God, alien to the will of God, disobedient to God. Which, by the way, that's every single one of us. Don't feel like lonely in this. If you're going, yeah, that kind of sums up my life. Welcome to fallen man. That's all of our estate. Paul would write in Romans, there's Every one of us is guilty. There's no one righteous, not even one. And in that day, every one of our mouths are silenced. And Satan, the accuser, will say, this one was mine. And you and I will have no excuse, no justification, no right. We'll see it. We'll... It's true. Every mouth is silenced in that day. Unless there's an advocate that in that moment speaks on your behalf, no one will. In that moment... It is revealed before God that you are spiritually bankrupt, that you are spiritually dead. Now, again, uh, welcome to SMC 22, by the way. Be, be encouraged. Um, hey, if you don't understand your state before God, apart from Christ, usually you'll never hunger for Christ. This is what's true of me. Before Christ. That's what's true of every man, every woman, before they are rescued by Christ. Uh, what I thought then, and what maybe some of you are thinking now, is man, that's a dark picture to be dead, darkened, disobedient, and doomed. Wow. Uh, hope this guy's time's almost up. You know, like that's a that's a stark reality. Can I tell you something? We generally in that place, begin immediately to justify. You know, okay, look, I don't know if there's a God, if there is, and I'm judged before him. I, don't, I mean, I'm living just as good as all these other folks. Like, I mean, sure, I, I don't know who makes it into heaven, but I feel like I'm, you know, on the right side of that deal. Or This is generally how we think of our level of righteousness. Uh, some of you are homeowners. Some of you may just know how to do this from went back when you were home, or some of you may one day have the experience of changing your air filters. When I go into the attic every three, four months to go in, if, I don't, if I'm going in to check the air filters, when I go in and check, I will pull out an air filter, and I'll kind of hold it up to the light. And generally, uh, because I have no standard with me, I look at it, and it's a little bit grayer than it's supposed to be. I mean, we've been living in the house with seven of us, and I'll look at it and say, ah, doesn't look great, doesn't look awful, probably got another month in it. 
and I'll slide her back in. But I've noticed something over the years of home ownership. If I take with me the new filter, the new icy white clean filter, and then if I pull the old one out and if I hold it up like this, my reaction's altogether different. In that moment, I always go, oh, gosh, what were we living in? Pride by here's probably got a disease. It's so stark. Um, Isaiah was a good guy. He was a prophet of God. Uh, he, he was one of the good guys. But when he saw God in Isaiah 6, saw him, and the temple filled with smoke, and the robe of the temple, and it trembled, and the angel said, holy, holy. When he saw God, you know what his reaction was? Oh, whoa, whoa, woe is me. I am unclean. By the way, this was a prophet of God. This was one of the good guys, one of the religious, one of the noble. Until he saw the righteousness of God. If you and I had a glimpse of the righteousness of God, we look at Ephesians 2 and we don't go, wait, wait a minute, that's kind of hard. That's when we look around at our buddies and begin to justify. But you get one look at God, you know what you do? Woe is me. It ain't just a little bit of spittle and otherwise good chili. Now, let me kind of round third and go home with this. Those are three of the most important Seemingly discouraging verses in the entire Bible. They're heavy, they're hard, they're true. They're theologically weighty. They're the state of man apart from God. But where they drop us off is this. When you are darkened, disobedient, dead, and doomed, you don't need a counselor to give you good advice. You don't need a therapist to sit with you and talk about how you feel about your state. You don't need a life coach who helps you put together 22 with all your goals and gives you a steady source of encouragement. You need a savior. A dead person cannot save himself. Doesn't need an assist. Needs salvation. Needs someone to come in and rescue. Rescue mission me out of my sin. Turn the lights on. Resurrect me. Savior. By the way, you saw the pictures of my kids. David's my fourth. I remember in our old house, we had a pool, and uh, my older three were uh, playing in the shallow end, just playing a little pool basketball. David was like three years old. There's a four-year gap between him and his, his next oldest brother, and, and he, was, uh, he, he was on the outside of this little pool fence we have to keep him safe, and, and he also had his little, uh, you know, floaty gear on, you know, and, we, you know I've kinda, and I'm on the grill just kind of keeping an eye on him. Somehow, he's a slippery little rascal, somehow he gets in the fence, and it all happens so quick. Now, he gets in the fence, and somehow he's out of his floaty. I mean, it, it can happen like that, and so I'm like, you know, grilling my hot dog, and I look, and all of a sudden, I see him, and he's on the edge of the pool. And he's watching his brothers, and he's so excited. He's, you know, he's cheering, he's kind of doing this, and he just, he just he sees them, and he's just so, and I knew it was coming. And I just slammed the grill. I started in that direction. About the first step I took, he plunged in. Man has no idea how to swim. All right, just boom, like a rock in a pond. He just disappeared. The others are just playing basketball. They don't even notice. I leap over this fence. I'm fully clothed, and I hurl myself into the pool. 
and I grab this guy sinking in the uh, middle of the pool, and I pull him up, and he's just, just spewing out water everywhere, put him on the side, trying to remember everything I know about CPR. Fortunately, he wasn't that bad off, but he's just gagging up and throwing up water. Um, David did not need me to come to the side of the pool and say, kick your feet, kick your feet. Use your arms. Work this way. Get to the... He didn't need me to go into swim coach mode right there. Not what he needed. He needed me to get into the pool and get him out of the pool. He needed me to rescue him. Now, I want you to understand something. Swimming lessons for drowning men, much less dead men, is just religious activity and it's futility. And it's every other religion apart from Christianity where God sends a rescuer into the pool after you. Now, by the way, my metaphor actually is not gospel integrity because Jesus does not do for us what I did for David. He certainly comes into to our mess, but we're not just drowning. The text was clear, we're dead. And furthermore, he can't just get us out save the day and everybody be happy and go back to the hot dogs. Because when God told Adam, you eat of this, you'll surely die. Paul will explain this in Romans. The wages of our sin are death. Like there's a price to be paid. There's something we owe in our sin. The, the wage, what we've earned in our sin is death. There was physical death after the garden. There's spiritual death. There can't be a rescuer if there's not a redeemer. We are dead, darkened, doomed, and disobedient unless a rescuer comes for us and unless that rescuer redeems us. Redeem means to buy back. Redeem means to pay a price, to set someone free. That's what redemption is. That's such a beautiful word, so we love that word so much. You guys know Chronicles of Narnia. It's one of the uh, movies my boys love. You know, when Edmund uh, falls prey to the white witch's scheme and he eats of the, you know, whatever that stuff is. And, uh, but, but remember, he's serving her until he realizes he doesn't really want to be serving her any longer. He realizes what a sour state he's in and he's lost in mind. And, and here's Aslan. And all of a sudden, Edmund feels the weight of his sin. And he's like, hey, you know, Aslan, I mean, he's, I mean, he's the, he can roar and fix this whole thing. Can't he just pull me back? And C.S. Lewis did such a great job of depicting something essential to the gospel in this movie when Aslan can't just go and by force take Edmund back. He can, but he can't. Certainly he could do that, but he won't. Because by virtue of his betrayal, by virtue of his being a traitor, Edmund has pledged his allegiance to the white witch prince of the world. We're following him. Edmund's following her. And so Aslan knows. He goes into that tent with the white witch. You don't know what's going on. He comes out and he says, you're free. And by cheers. Did he intimidate the white witch? Did he strong armor? Did he threaten? We don't know yet until the next scene when Aslan goes off in the night and places himself on the stone table to be run through with a sword. He had to offer himself 
to be slave, to take on the wrath that was due Edmund so Edmund could go free. And if you're not stirred in that scene, that's redemption. We are dead, darkened, disobedient, doomed, unless there's a rescuer. And unless that rescuer is a redeemer who will take our place in judgment and pay what we owe. You see, God, talked about the character traits of God last night, God's merciful. That's why even he, even he hasn't returned. Second Peter tells us he's patient. He's forbearing with sinful man, not wanting anyone to perish. He's merciful, but he's also just. He can't simply wink at sin and say, ah, all right, let's try again. His wrath towards sin must be dealt with. And so where the mercy of God meets the justice of God is at the cross of Jesus Christ. Merciful to send his only begotten, just that someone pays the price. The righteous for the unrighteous. And when that happens, a miracle, listen, when Christ pays the price for our sin, there's a bridge created from lost, darkened, dead man to holy, righteous God who is, who is life. And uh, I had a man walk into my office uh, just the day, Saturday, the day before I left. I went up to the office and I was uh, just looking over this text and a guy, this is how God does sometimes, a guy opened the door, uh, by the way, it's a Saturday, and this is for somebody here because it's a Saturday, I'm in my office, and a guy walks in without knocking, which made me a little bit upset. And he stuck his head in. I said, can I help you? He said, hey, I just wanted to introduce myself. He said, I don't know you. He said, I'm 75 years old. He said, and I remember in 1965, by the way, I'm in my office on a Saturday morning going, what are we doing? What, who, who is this guy? He said, I was in my house in 1965 when my dad brought home the rabbit ears, and it was the day that color TV was invented. And he hooked it up, and we had known nothing but black and white. And then he said, guys, watch this. And he turned the knob, and boom, everything was in color. He said, me and my brothers and sisters sat there going, ah. And he said, I just wanted you to know, that's what happened to me 16 months ago in this church. Can I tell you something? When God turns on the light in your life, first thing you understand is the weight of sin. You understand deadness. There's no more justifying. There's no more rationalizing. You know, I'm dead, I'm disobedient, I'm darkened, and I'm doomed. And then you see Christ exalted. And there's some tuning fork in your soul that knows Him for me that knows there is a rescuer, there is a redeemer, and there is one who recreates me and makes me new, sets me free, gives me life. In that moment, everything that was once black and white, it was life as you knew it. Boom! Everything changes. Your mind, your heart, your affections, and your will. You were once enslaved to Satan, now you're enslaved to Christ. And there's a longing like you've never felt in your life. There's a love. You, there's a desire for God. There's a love for God. There's a longing for God. There's a desire to 
pursue him and push forth the boundaries of his kingdom and chase after him. There's an aliveness, there's a satisfaction. It's always foreign in the black and white existence. But in color, it's the air you breathe. And our text gave you the three toughest verses in the Bible, followed by the two greatest words in the Bible. Can we put them on the screen, verse 4? You were darkened, dead, disobedient, and doomed. Verse 4, I'll read it. But God, there they are. But God. Isn't that something? Paul says, you were dead. You were darkened. You were disobedient. And my friend, you were doomed. But means there's hope. But God means God has done something for you that you cannot do for yourself. God sent a rescuer. God sent a redeemer. And God sent a recreator to make you alive. Could it be SMC 22 that God is on a rescue mission for you? Father, thank you for the moments to dwell in a text that is otherwise heavy. Oh, but the but God. I was dead, darkened, disobedient, and doomed. But God. That's my testimony. And if there's anyone here that has placed their trust in Christ, Christ exalted, crucified, dead, buried, and raised on the third day, what your word says is, when we trust in Christ, we partake in his death and receive the forgiveness of sin. And we partake in his resurrection and receive new life. That's the color TV. That's the lights coming on. God, there's no way in an arena this size that everybody here sees in color. There are many here that are in the river with a strong current going the way of the world, just like everybody else, following the desires of our flesh. It says in chapter 4, darkened in our understanding, separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. God, quicken us to see our state. Bring the weight of guilt. Bring the glory of Christ. Bring the beauty of the gospel. Make this day a heavy day that leads to chains breaking and the freedom and the rest of the yoke of Christ. Our rescuer, our redeemer, our recreator. We'll ask it in his name and for his glory. Amen. <laughs>